The world grows ever more dominated by artificial intelligence. We're promised huge productivity gains and streamlining benefits to make our lives easier. But there are significant drawbacks. The data underpinning AI is biased, the technology can amplify inequalities, and it's unclear who will set crucial standards for the sector and how they will be imposed. That's a concern for our guest this episode, Roman Chowdhury, responsible AI fellow at Harvard University's Berkman Klein Center, who has long been a campaigner for equality in technology. She fears we're giving the keys to our society to a small group of companies that have shown they can't be fully trusted. I'm Chris Stokel-Walker, and for Human Rights Organization Article 19, this is Tectonic. Roman Chowdhury, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I, I can't think of many other people who have been thinking as deeply about maybe the situation that we're in in this present moment. Um, we seem to be in the middle of kind of major AI developments. In the week that we speak, we've had ChatGPT announcing it's going to be using audio and video and images. Tell us a story about the super duper sunflower hedgehog named Larry. Larry was a unique hedgehog unlike any other. He had bright sunflower petals instead of spines. Earlier this month, we've had a kind of, you know, the start of a race of AI image supremacy. And in the UK, at least, we have soon coming up the UK's AI Summit. Okay. All right. Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome. Elon, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. How are you feeling as someone who's been kind of studying not just AI, but big tech in general about this present moment? That's a great question. How am I feeling? I would say mixed. So what I'll say is it is a time of immense change. Things are moving very, very quickly. Change means opportunity. However, I am increasingly concerned about the consolidation of wealth and power and oversight that's being privatized. On top of everything you've just mentioned, just today, Amazon, AWS is pouring $4 billion into Anthropic. So this is how big tech maintains its lead in artificial intelligence, deals with the most promising startups in the space alongside. So we're seeing a significant amount of wealth, I mean, unheard of amounts of wealth being put into very, very young, very young companies. And Anthropic, for, for listeners who may be on deep into this AI world, is actually generally considered one of the good guys in AI development. Dario Amadei, who's pretty good. They have a guy called Jack Clark, who's seen as kind of, I guess, a useful watchdog. Um, what do you make of that decision? Yeah, I've known Jack for years. I've actually known Jack since his open AI days. I think, you know, a lot of us subscribe to his newsletter. You know, in general, he has his head on straight. Um, but they're also one of the companies that genuinely believes in building artificial general intelligence. And they're on the existential risk side of things. If, you know, when we talk about the the spectrum of perspectives and opinions that now exist in the field of what it means to create responsible, ethical, safe, secure, all those words have become incredibly loaded. Um, you know, th they lie on more of the existential risk side of things. Mm -hmm. And that comes, I guess, with its own a uh, whole set of issues that could probably be a... There is, that could be a whole other separate podcast episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, obviously, I know you've talked previously about kind of 
ethical uh, surveillance and the lack of it. Um, you, you did a talk at New York University saying you don't think ethical surveillance can exist. I mean, what is the concern around surveillance capitalism and the sort of, I guess, increasing race that we're seeing around AI fueled by these big tech companies spending billions of dollars? Well, it, it's also in alignment with OpenAI's announcement to do red teaming with general members of the public, their announcement, as you mentioned, of video, audio, et cetera. There are, there are no longer private aspects of our lives. In general, that is concerning. No matter who owns it, a government, private entity, et cetera, there should be something that is yours for you. And increasingly, that does not exist. Every interaction, everything we do, everywhere we go, who we see, who we interact, everything is being cataloged you know, quantified and stored somewhere by somebody. And whether or not it's being used today, it can and will be used tomorrow in a way that we may not even understand. And there are a couple of things I worry about. I worry, and I'll start from like the more pragmatic to the more existential. On the more pragmatic sense, it is a pure invasion of privacy. People are monitoring you. As I mentioned, this data is often sold by third-party actors on markets. And I'm not saying any of these specific companies are selling your data. I have genuinely no idea. They probably aren't because they have no, they don't need to make revenue from selling your data, but they have need for your data. So your data is being used right now today. On top of that, as I mentioned, there are third-party brokers that sell your data. We know that, for example, social media monitoring exists and people are denied jobs based on their presence on the internet. Again, whether or not you have a social media account is irrelevant because we know that uh, companies can make shadow profiles, companies can track and trace you based on your friends' behaviors. These, this has existed for a long time. Increasingly, we're seeing things like surveillance of public spaces, which I know has been a constant topic of discussion in the UK. In the US, you know, we're seeing um, the city of New York introducing robo-dogs. This New York City police dog was pulled off the streets after it was first launched for being too creepy. But now Spot, the DigiDog, is back and here to stay, according to the city's mayor. Um, and, you know, increasingly robot monitoring. And on the more existential side of things, I genuinely worry about what will happen to children as they become adults in a world in which there is nothing you are ever allowed to do wrong. You know, to be clear, all of us screw up in our lives. All of us say and do stupid things. And that is part of what it means to grow up. Now, we will increasingly be in a completely unforgiving world where any minor misstep or even major misstep when you're young condemns you for the rest of your life. And what does it mean to be in that kind of society? It's almost ironic to me that the community of individuals who so bemoan cancel culture, tech billionaires, are the same ones introducing a world in which cancel culture is codified into algorithms. And I mean, we should get on to the algorithm discussion and, and kind of how, I guess, rolling that into AI makes things worse. But this is a, an issue that has kind of long plagued tech, right? The idea of us giving over our data and that data kind of being used and potentially weaponized in the future against us. That's exactly true. This is not a new story. I think it's just become more pervasive and more invasive. These companies are trying to make these tools completely inseparable from our day-to-day -day lives. Like the same way we now carry around 
tracking devices, aka smartphones, in a way that we did not de- like a couple of decades. It was hard to remember how our lives ever happened without smartphones, and we've given up some degree of privacy for that. And I worry we're going to head into the same future again with with social media and, and well, not social media platforms and algorithms. I say social media, by the way, because it's very fascinating. I come, you know, I, I was at Twitter until last November. And it's interesting how much of this generative AI world is actually a, a direct reflection of all the tensions we had with platform companies a decade or so ago. Yeah. And I was going to ask you about that. It seems from the outside in, and, and you have worn and have previously had two feet inside the tent, I suppose. It seems like the current raft of AI companies, you mentioned kind of having a, a tracking device in every pocket of smartphones and how they've become you know, inseparable from us in our day-to-day lives. Have the current crop of AI companies learned a playbook from kind of social media and previous generations in order to sell their product as even more, not just life-affirming, but I guess important for your day-to-day lives? It's very interesting. And I like how you framed that as, you know, are they pushing it that way versus the reality of the situation? The reality of the situation is generative AI as it exists today is still a fun party trick. It is not yet integrated into everything that we do. I do think it can be, and certainly there is a big financial incentive for these companies and the companies investing in these companies to make that world happen. I think the option is we have the option to not use those products, but they will do everything they can to make these products things that we could never say no to. Um, so that's one tension. And, and second, I don't know if they've directly just learned from platforms. You know, we're, we're here talking about surveillance capitalism. I would be remiss if I did not refer to Shoshana Zuboff's mm. book. One thing about that book is, so I come into this field as a social scientist, a quantitative social scientist. I've worked as an economist. I'm a political scientist by background. I think there's one misunderstanding people have of Zuboff's book, and and I think that misunderstanding drives some of the critiques of her book, especially when it comes from the responsible tech community. What I think she does extremely well and very brilliantly is she lays out the economic model for Silicon Valley. I mean, it's literally like it is a big book. (laughs) I always tell people you don't have to read the whole thing, but like read at least the inch in the first few chapters. She actually deep dives into the exact economic model almost to the event of how it happened in Silicon Valley. That's the most brilliant part of her book. So, you know, I think they're just the companies say are just carrying on a legacy of what Web 1.0 taught the very, very first wave of companies, which is data, what we used to then be called data exhaust. This seemingly useless data can be repurposed for very, very useful things. And that's really what created this collect all the data you can mentality. And that's exactly what these companies are doing. Now what's happening is all the data you can is no longer just cookies or passive pixels. Now it is quite literally what you are searching, the very interactions you are having online. And is there an element of, yeah, I often sometimes compare a search engine box to kind of a a confession booth for the 21st century. You kind of say your deepest secrets. Mm -hmm. Is there something in the generative AI revolution, the idea of a chatbot that can actually 
not just hear what you say, but also come back and talk to you about it. That's going to encourage us to share even more data, do you worry? Oh, absolutely. It's that and more. When you say a confession box, this will be the ultimate confession box, right? People will ask it for relationship advice, health advice. You know, there are companies that want to make the very first use case uh, that companies tried to privatize was making a therapy bot. So quite literally confession, quite literally one of the spaces in which people would consider sacrosanct, private, et cetera, is your conversation with your therapist. Now, I don't know what people imagine would happen with that data, but if they're not going to throw this data away, it's very, very useful for them to be repurposing, mining this data, figuring out insights. And sure, like I think, you know, to be somewhat charitable to companies, what they're saying is we use this data to improve what we are offering to you. But again, I ask at what cost? And I think this is this difference between the short-term benefit and the longer term impact that has always plagued responsible AI. You know, last year we had this massive wave of layoffs in tech. It was, you know, one of the hardest calls that I've I've had to make in 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 the 18 years of running the company. Amazon is preparing to lay off up to 10,000 workers. Meta is cutting 11,000. Netflix has made big cuts. So has Shopify, Snap, Twitter. Now, for a few months this year, tech employees, they could maybe relax a little. The AI hype cycle, it had given them cover from layoffs as companies raced to prove their AI propositions. Now, however, another shift is happening. LinkedIn just laid off nearly 700 employees. Qualcomm is planning to cut more than 1,200 jobs. There's also been a slew of layoffs at startups. And more than one reporter, and I think you pointed this out as well, Overwhelmingly, it came from trust and safety, responsible use, et cetera, because we are viewed as, quote, cost centers, right? So we do not build shiny, fancy widgets that then directly drive revenue quarter over quarter. However, without trust and safety, there is no product. People do not use products because it is the flashiest, shiniest widget. They consistently stay on platforms and they use products because it is a good environment to be in. So one of the most broken things about tech right now, and especially given the incoming influx of open source, is we haven't resolved this broken paradigm that assumes that trust and safety is an expense versus literally the thing that keeps your company going. And why haven't we solved that? What is it about the Silicon Valley mindset (laughs) that prevents us from thinking that? Yeah, I mean, it's two parts. So one, the Silicon Valley mindset is always about techno solutionism, right? The newest, shiniest, fanciest tech is, you know, going to solve all these big problems. And frankly, that humanity is flawed, right? The fundamental aspect of the Silicon Valley mantra is humanity is flawed and tech will save us. Therefore, nobody wants to deal with a bunch of people who talk all day about, you know, how the trans community is being treated or how women of color are being treated, etc. It's all messy. We don't want to talk about that. We want to optimize that away. The other part I'll add is, again, to be charitable to companies, companies are assessed on a quarter over quarter, especially if they're if once they go public, they're assessed quarter over quarter and maybe year over year. No longer than that. Nobody cares what Facebook did three years ago. They care how Facebook did last quarter and they cared how Facebook did one year ago this quarter when we're thinking about pure revenue. So when companies get pressure from shareholders to make revenues higher, Literally, it's just a cold calculation of we need to reduce costs and increase revenue. Well, if we can't increase revenue, then clearly we have to cut things that are expenses. And again, trust and safety, responsible use is considered a cost center. It's an expense. So just by pure, cold, capitalistic bookkeeping, we would be the obvious thing to drop. So how do you introduce grit into the oyster? 
there? How do you stop that kind of runaway capitalist ideal of profit before people? What's the solution to try and get them to think about this? Yeah, um, you know, this is not a new conversation. This is not a tech-only conversation. I don't know if you remember, but I think it was around 2018, the CEO of BlackRock wrote Hmm. this actually very phenomenal and earth-shattering memo coming from the CEO of BlackRock that talked about, you know, how optimizing short-term at the expense of long-term is going to fundamentally lead to issues in just the viability of companies and the viability of the global economy in general. We saw the CEO of Panera leave Panera to go pursue this concept of what does it mean to build business that is not just quote over quarter profit oriented and bringing it into tech. We see companies exploring alternative models of revenue, right? So OpenAI is a capped profit company. Anthropic is a B Corp. So even the concept of a B Corp, you know, Patagonia is a B Corp company that actually does incredibly well and also saves the Patagonian forests, right? So it's 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 interesting to see some companies unilaterally exploring this notion, but I don't, it's certainly not a solved issue. And I'm curious to see what happens? I mean, you know, we've mapped the journey of open AI and even Elon Musk, as much as we are two incredibly different people, will constantly point out that open AI's mission when he invested in it was to create technology for the public good. Everything was supposed to be open. Once it moved into a revenue model, even though it's a cap profit model, suddenly we need to close doors. We need to guard our tech, intellectual property, security and privacy, which everybody lambasted the social media companies for. Right. And I wonder what's going to happen to a company like Anthropic, which is a B Corp, but now has immense pressure from regular C Corp, very powerful shareholders like Amazon, which is not exactly known for ethical and responsible use. Hmm. And obviously, you mentioned Elon Musk there. You have, I guess, a little bit of interaction with him. He decided in response, he was so angry, frankly, at the company that he invested in at the, the start, moving away from that sort of ideal that it, it was founded with, that uh, he set up his own company, XAI. I'm, I'm going to start something which I know you call Truth GBT or a maximum truth-seeking AI that tries to understand the nature of the universe. And I think this, this might be the best path to safety. Elon Musk debuted Grok, the newest AI chatbot to hit the market. His AI company, XAI, describes Grok as a rebellious streak and that it should answer the spicy questions that other AI would stay away from, like explaining how to make cocaine. Do you think that will be any better or do you think that will just repeat the same mistakes as everyone else? I mean, XAI, and I've seen a bunch of articles about sexually drawing from a more Chinese model, which is about basically purchasing the data by owning an online social media platform and using that. It's sort of like a direct pipeline versus what the other LLM companies have done, which is sort of scrape the internet writ large, like use Reddit, use Wikipedia, et cetera. So, you know, he's using Twitter or what used to be known as Twitter as the the feeder for creating x.ai i mean he's also come out and said he doesn't believe in all these woke llms and he's here to make a non-woke i genuinely don't know what it means to make a non-woke llm but it's interesting because this goes back to this this like fundamental flaw in thinking the highest number of parameters and the flashiest transformer technology is what people like the average person wants and it's actually deeply untrue we've seen so many social media platforms fail 
because they did not recognize that trust and safety is what people needed. And again, I see that same conversation in large language models in these chatbots. People want reliable interactions. They want consistent information. You know, it's all very boring what people want. I think Silicon Valley works itself up into a fervor about investing in, quote, AI. Eric Schmidt at the Schumer Insights Forum was reiterating that he's, you know, advocated for the U.S. government to spend $23 billion on AI R&D. And my question was, how much of that's going to be earmarked for trust and safety? Because nobody's thought about that. They think the way to win the AI race is to just keep investing in developing the flashiest tech with zero regard to what people actually need in their lives. Mm. And you mentioned, Derek Schmidt, there are obviously connections to, to Google. You mentioned earlier also the idea of red teaming, which is... Um, I guess, kind of going in and poking around technology to try and find the holes with a, a bit more of a, a kind of mendacious approach um, while also being on, on the side of the angels, as it were. Um, do you think then that these companies will do that? Do you think there is currently a kind of awareness of the trust and safety exposure risk amongst OpenAI amongst Microsoft, amongst Google and others? So as you mentioned at the top of the conversation, I've been on industry side. And, and to be honest, there are a lot of really amazing people who take jobs at these companies. I, I think these individuals go under-recognized. And I think often they're in this really strange position where their affiliation is with a company that it's it, it's very easy to paint as the bad guy. But certainly I can understand wanting to fight the fight from inside you know, you can have so much more impact. You can actually change the course of how decisions are made. I think those of us who have worked inside companies could write entire books of all the decisions that were never made because <laughs> we were there and how much worse the world would actually be if all these people didn't exist, right? Um, here, here's what I, what I think is the issue, though, that we all will need to grapple with. If we are truly building general purpose AI models, Tackling the range of issues that are going to be introduced, the like infinite number of ways in which a general purpose AI model can go wrong is not something a single company can tackle. Um, so, you know, even in the world of narrow AI, a world in which, you know, I use data that was radiology, you know, x-rays to train a image recognition to identify cancer, blah, blah, blah. Even those, like, and those sound just like toy examples at this point, so narrow, so small those are still incredibly flawed. And here we are saying, we're gonna build a model that does everything. There is no way, frankly, these companies can tackle every single use case, every single harm. And the thing is, especially as even like, and I think we're all in agreement, companies, people inside companies, outside companies, no matter where we are on the spectrum, that there is a broad societal impact. Now, drawing from my experience in responsible AI, Tackling the concept of societal impact requires more than people who get six-figure tax salaries. Mm. And yet those people are often sort of shunted off into silos that are sort of ethical teams. I'm, I'm thinking particularly of Timnit Gebru, Margaret Mitchell, who you know, were part of like a, an ethical development team at a large tech company and then 
essentially had to leave because their work wasn't being respected, essentially. Um, you know, as I mentioned, there's a lot of people who work in companies on these issues. And it's not to say that the argument I'm making is that all of this cannot happen in-house, right? So my personal take is that when you have signed on to go work at a company, your responsibility is to improve what that company is doing. That is actually very, very different from a remit of civil society and very, very different from a remit of government. So now we are living in an era where even with tech layoffs, the for-profit industry world of responsible AI is actually quite developed. There are lots of people, there are more people being hired, et cetera. Even if you know there are certainly gaps, there are certainly things that can be done better, but it is the most invested in of those three arms that I've mentioned. Civil society has a lot of really wonderful people doing work that tends to be more on the policy and qualitative side. Now, where someone like myself comes in is, I, my team was an engineering team. Uh, we're a hybrid applied research engineering team. I worked on our core ML platform team. Like, I didn't run a research team. I didn't run a policy team. And as on the outside, what I'm seeing is there is not enough of that skill set, right? So now government's increasingly investing in oversight, in you know, oversight writ large, I mean, define that as broadly as you will, because every aspect there's a rush to invest. But I'm still seeing an underinvestment in civil society. And all this, and I've been saying this, you know, I said this in my house testimony, I said this at, at the Schumer Insights Forum, the AI Insights Forum. We need more of an investment that's a concerted effort in, you know, in improving independent auditing oversight that's not somebody who's at a company and not somebody who's in the government. And yeah, I'm intrigued. You were at that forum that Chuck Schumer put together around AI. I, I don't know when you proposed that. What was the response? You know, I I think the concept of developing technical skill sets in civil society and and this idea of improved model transparency is still a very very new one. I mean, so to to kind of frame what the purpose was of the Insights Forum, it was kind of like a like as the name implies it's almost like a tutorial for congress members so you know of course people if they had a particular political perspective were pushing you know for their pet bills or whatever but you know senator schumer laid it out in the very beginning like this is not a place to be stumping this is actually a place to ask questions of people who who are experts you know who run the companies and also who are in civil society organizations um and also technical experts so i was there dev raji was there you know so it, it was more of a place for that kind of narrative back and forth um i will say you know i think people are confused about what something like that might look like and i think increasingly we're seeing investors like when i say investors i mean people who invest in civil society organizations realizing that this is a gap that needs to be filled so you know i'm often in these rooms saying that and there's sort of this like puzzled look because people associate civil society with kind of writing lots of good papers but not in so much as civil society as providing quantitative insights but i will say like other parts of the world understand this so the the digital services act which i think actually goes under under evaluated under recognized because the eu ai act is such a behemoth the dsa very quietly introduced all of that in europe so european researchers now can have access to data and models and information to do critical analyses in a way that American researchers cannot. So, you know, I'm working with ECAT and I'm trying to bring in some of that mentality into the U.S., but it's a bit of an uphill battle. I think on all ends, people are still learning what it means to be on the outside and still have access to tech. 
Yeah, I, I wrote about the uh, the Digital Services Act in the EU, which, as you say, compels all of this stuff. Just this weekend for a publication, an awful lot of American tech folks said, well, this stymies competition. This is terrible because you want to have people being able to develop things at their speed. Otherwise, no big tech companies have come out of Europe, and that's evidence for why this is a bad thing. What would you say to them? Yeah, so two things. One is it, there's been a lot, interestingly, a lot of economics research into kind of the, the, it's not just that big tech companies have all come out of the US, they've almost all come out of Silicon Valley. Mm. And it's actually very interesting looking at the history of it's sort of there's this there's this magical triangle trifecta of investment, p- proximity to university, and also kind of talent, that is very interesting. The only other part of the U.S. where that exists is Boston, and Boston is like massive biotech, right? So the other thing about U.S. that has enabled uh, the investment and development of these big tech companies is frankly how VC funding works. And that's also very, very new concept to both the UK and the EU. So like, so I've seen over time a lot of these uh, laws relaxing into, you know, who's allowed to invest, even the concept of angel investing, right? You can't, you have traditionally not been able to do that in other countries the way you can in the US. Just hand somebody $10,000 and, you know, actually have a legal agreement where you own some sort of, you know, so there's a lot. It's not just about stifling competition. I actually think it's about very traditionally the US being more pro-innovation, pro-business, et cetera. And again, it's like it's a quintessential US thing, right? But the other part to that I'll add is, you know, I'm actually in the middle of conducting research onto exactly what individuals want when they want to evaluate a model, right? And and it's because of some of some of these this pushback I've heard about, you know, uh, intellectual poverty and privacy and security. And so for this research, I interviewed a I define the term model evaluator very 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 broadly. I mean everybody from individuals from AWO, which is a, a you know a legal tech mm-hmm. policy org, all the way to you know very deep quantitative researchers who run experiments on Facebook's ad targeting platform, and even to folks like data journalists. So I kind of went really really broad. And it was what was really fascinating to me because I lie more on the technical side of things was incredibly fascinating to me, and I was hoping to see this. But I'm glad I did. Not a single person said, I need access to the code and I need access to data. That's actually not what anybody wants. And and I can say anecdotally, like, I agree. I don't need to have the code. What I need is actually what exists today. And this is how people are able to do research into, for example, Twitter before the API became very expensive, Reddit, Facebook, et cetera. People need access to an API and they also want independent data to test against their model. So they want model metadata. They want to know what input goes into a model. They want to understand a general idea of what the model is supposed to do, where it lies in the system. So something that already exists today in system cards, for example, or model cards or data sheets. And then they want independent and reliable data sets to throw against the model to test it. So for example, if I want to understand if there's gender bias in a model, what I don't do is go into the model's data and look at the gender distribution. What I actually do is I get a data set that is completely independent and I throw it against the model and I see the output that comes and I see if that output is biased by gender. So nowhere in this have I actually violated intellectual property, privacy, or security. I do not need access to code. I do not need access to data. So I don't know what their secret sauce is. I don't actually need to know what their secret sauce is to do a model evaluation. So what I'm advocating for and what I'm trying to build now with my nonprofit is an open source platform where people can share evals. So what's missing and the big gap is 
there is no consolidated place people can do this. There's no consolidated effort. People have their own piecemeal stuff they do. Everyone said the same thing. Like, oh, I've got my data set for this, and here's how I get into that API. And everyone sort of had the same fears. So first, their fear was the companies would wise up to their IP address, and they'd kind of track what they're doing. The second is that you know they weren't sure if the output would be consistent or reliable because they don't have any insights into any of the details about the model itself. Again, not the code, but just information about the models and what they are testing. Um, and then third, they nobody had a good place for independent data sets, so they all kind of curated their own, and they would have loved to have like somewhere to share this stuff. So it, you know, I can see a world in which that argument is valid for many reasons, but it simply doesn't hold for model evaluations. And that's kind of the the coalface bottom-up aspect of it, of actually testing these models as they work. But then also you seem to have suggested a few months ago in a, a wired op-ed, a kind of top-down approach of a, a global governance board. Why do you think that's needed in, in the sort of face of this AI revolution? Yes. Um, and this this goes back to how we're moving away from narrow AI to general purpose. And, you know, what the difficult thing to tackle here is, again, I'm going to put my political scientist hat on for a minute. Uh, a diversity of policy approaches actually is net good. There are other political regimes we may not agree with. And of course, there are ones that are egregiously wrong, like violating fundamental human rights. But in general, it is good that we have a wide range of, you know, balance between consumer protection and, you know, industry or something like that, right? So what I don't want is global governance to supplant or replace national sovereignty or even local sovereignty. You know, I'll, I'll give you a very, a very random but very interesting example. It exists in the U.S. and, you know, maybe only in a country like the U.S. could something like this exist. So um, you may know that, you know, weed has been legalized in some states in the U.S., but actually it is still illegal at the federal level. So if you want to go purchase weed in a state where it's legal, you have to buy it in cash because they cannot open bank accounts. Right, because bank accounts are a federally controlled entity, they it would they would be breaking the law if they were selling weed and putting that into a bank account. So it's very fascinating, right? So then we'll have some states where it's illegal, some states where it's legal, but not like it's just such an interesting paradigm of governance to have this diversity. So what does that mean for global governance and why global governance? Well, you know, as I mentioned, you know, some of the general purpose AI will have use cases that are borderless. And it doesn't even have to be general purpose. We're already seeing implementations of AI and machine learning, even narrow, that we're realizing have implications cross-border. And the way I've been framing it is, is the question, like, what is the climate change of AI? So climate change is a great analogy, right? So the general rubric is something like, you know, um, it's, it's independent of borders and you can't govern it, you know, uh, of your own accord. So, you know, we lived it in the U.S., the air quality in New York and, you know, and DC and many parts of the Eastern seaboard and the Pacific Northwest were really bad because of wildfires in Canada. So it does not matter if the U.S. doesn't have fires happening or whatever, you know, what happens in, in another in another country crosses our borders. So that's why climate change needed to be tackled and needs to be tackled at a global level. And these are the, this is the question I'm asking. And I have an upcoming op-ed and Wired about this. Like, so now what? Right. So I wrote that article Back in April, I started the meme IAEA for AI with that. At this point, at this point, I just call it a meme because it's just it's gotten a life of its own. Thank you, Sam Altman, for popularizing it. Um, 
But, you know, now it's been some months, right? And we've sat through, you know, the launch of the DSA and the DMA, a lot of conversation on the EU AI Act, um, which are global in nature, even if, you know, driven as a national entity. Um, and also the UN and OECD and all these other groups coming in, UNESCO, coming in to talk about what global governance means. And where should that sit then? You mentioned UNESCO, you mentioned the OECD. Mm-hmm. Who is the the kind of supranational body that you think this should sit in or should it be an entirely new one? Um, well, that's a great question. And a lot of the focus last week at UN General Assembly meetings and some of the satellite meetings I was in was actually about this very specific topic. So it, here's how the argument would go. On one end, Entities, the geopolitical entities carry so much baggage. A really good example is the US-China conversation, right? So if you are working in any given tech company, frankly, another country is simply another time zone. We don't know borders, you know, we don't think about the geopolitics, we genuinely don't. And again, there are good people who work in these companies, like for example, TikTok, that are trying to implement responsible use. So excluding them from these rooms would actually be a disservice to them and their job. On the other end, there are strong geopolitical tensions between U.S. and China. So how do we introduce China to a conversation about AI and human rights, right? So on one end of the conversation, you could say China should never be allowed in a room that's about AI and human rights because they're just, you know, they have just a fundamentally different perspective. On the other end, one could argue, well, there are people who are working in global companies based in China that are trying to implement responsible use and you'd be doing them a disservice by not enabling them to draw upon anything that's happening in those rooms by overtly excluding China. So that's been one of the conversations is, you know, if we bring in an existing global geopolitical entity, then we are bringing in all that baggage. It's decades of baggage. It's nothing to do with tech. It has to do with nuclear weapons and it has to do with economic trade, et cetera. Do we want to bring in that baggage? The second and one of the big concerns about a UN entity and even the OECD, even though it's fundamentally economically driven, is to date, all the conversations we've tried to have about governance have been multi-stakeholder. So they've included civil society, et cetera, in those rooms. Now, the UN, these are multilateral organizations, and there the the state is the primary actor. So for example, I may represent a nonprofit. I can go to the Schumer Insights Forum and talk to senators. At the end of the day, at the UN, it is one voice coming out of the US. I don't think it would be my voice in that room, to be perfectly frank, right? The higher up you go, the more opaque that room becomes and difficult to kind of achieve a presence in that room. Um, and, and I know, you know, to credit the UN Tech Envoy, Amandeep Gilla, he's trying to tackle these issues. I had some great conversations. We actually had him uh, on, on September 11th. Uh, my nonprofit did, uh, you know, a small event in New York, and he was kind enough to join us and talk about what he's working on. And I think they're trying to tackle these issues. That's one end. On the other end, right, so you're like, all right, well, then throw out the UN. Let's just do this ourselves. It took decades to build the kind of consensus that is a room like the UN, and we cannot diminish how much labor goes into that. So if we were to start anew, and this is a big problem responsible tech has in general, is how is this body to be legitimate, right? I can just decide tomorrow I've created a global governance org. It doesn't matter. I mean, we're seeing the same issue with standards, by the way, right? Everybody has a standard. Everybody set up a little org and they all have their standards. It doesn't matter because until it has legitimacy, 
you're, you're just a guy with a website, <laughs> you know, you're just, it really, that's all it is. So the legitimacy of these organizations cannot be discounted. Again, the, all of the legwork they've done to create international consensus cannot be discounted. The last part I'll add is, and it was, this was in a really great Time Magazine article about the whole thing, is it is worth noting that we are living in an era of unprecedented strife between countries, within countries. So on top of everything else, we can't ignore the geopolitics because frankly, everybody hates everybody right now. <laughs> and so given all that, and given the pace at which AI is developing, should we then bundle this in? Because I guess we can talk shop for decades and decades, but these tools are already here. I think you're correct. You know, one of the conversations that was going around a lot last week is a good safe place to start for the UN would be create an IPCC for AI. So some sort of like a scientific global computing organization. My concern with that is it will have no teeth. It will have no ability to govern. I think it will it will be very nice for creating sort of the soft power relationships. But again, that kind of already exists at companies. So I do worry that, you know, global governance org that won't have any teeth will just be more noise in this conversation. Um, so what to do? You know, I, I, this is what I'm grappling with in writing this op-ed. You know, it's it's first of all, the first question is what issue should we tackle, right? What What is a global issue to tackle versus a local issue to tackle versus a national issue? And how do we create those bright lines? And the second is how does a global entity move at the pace of and at the the regulatory strictness that is required to make these companies comply. There's there's no reason for them to. They'll show up, you know, if they do, frankly, show up to UN events, it'll just be, you know, a very nice meeting and then everybody will move on with their lives. We don't need more governing bodies, <laughs> frankly. Indeed. Well, if there's anybody that I hope would be grappling with this, certainly you, given your expertise on this. Roman Chowdhury, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Tectonic, a new podcast from Article 19. We hope you'll join us for future episodes, which we will release every fortnight, and look at the wide variety of ways that these seismic shifts we're currently seeing in technology can affect our freedom of expression. I'm Chris Stoker-Walker. Your producers this episode were Christopher Hooten and Nicola Kelly, with theme music and original score by Julian Wharton. If you would like to leave us a star rating or review wherever you're listening, that would be hugely appreciated. It really makes a difference to our show. Thank you, and see you next time.